Welcome to the Two Evil Eyes Podcast, a podcast on horror, science fiction, and fantasy films. Episode 2. In today's episode, we will have the following segments, new in theaters, wherein we will discuss Terminator Genesis and the bad reviews it's been getting. Are they deserved? We'll mention two Blu-ray releases, and we'll close off this episode with a previously published interview with Richard Stanley. You can comment on today's podcast on Twitter at Two Evil Eyes Pod. I think I should create a new segment for this podcast that talks about what critics collectively hate at the moment. It definitely feels all critics agree on Terminator Genesis being a terrible film. I, for one, don't agree with them. Honestly, I don't think I'm alone. It seems that the audience tolerates, likes, or even loves this new Terminator installment. If you look at the IMDb user rating score for the original Terminator, you see it's the second best liked of the series, scoring 8.1, which is only topped by its sequel, Judgment Day, which scores a whopping 8.5. The least liked of the series is Rise of the Machines, the first one that Cameron wasn't involved in. It scores 6.4. The fourth movie that was created, the second without Cameron, Salvation, scores a little bit higher than Rise of the Machines at 6.7. However, at the time of this recording, Terminator Genesis scores 7.1, and that's not as bad as it makes it the best-liked Terminator film of the ones Cameron wasn't involved in. And although it's still early and that number may still change with time, it just happens to be my favorite of the non-Cameron Terminators as well. At any rate, a 7.5 on IMDb is not a bad score. Yet, if you were to believe the critics, it should be the worst movie known to mankind. In fact, they collectively down-talk this film so much that it feels very political or even religious. James Cameron apparently is God to these people, and you're just not allowed to touch it. The only thing I didn't care much for was the fact that the film played the Terminator trying to smile card once too often, and that's it. Other than that, it was a fantastic film that does exactly what it should do. Go see it with an open mind and realize that some of the original actors, such as Michael Bean, Linda Hamilton... Edward Furlong cannot be replaced. That said, I think the actors in this film do a tremendous job under those circumstances. I absolutely enjoyed this film, and if you even remotely liked the other non-Cameron Terminators, you will definitely like this one as well. James from the UK is joining us for a little discussion about Terminator Genesis. Uh, hey, James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dirk. Um, yeah, I've just got back today from seeing it uh, in Derby at the Showcase Cinemas. There, it was very, you know, pretty good quality. I didn't go and see it in 3D as you recommended, really, because. You said it was just kind of added on 3D, and uh, I could imagine it was pretty okay to watch in 3D, actually, if you got a good cinema and all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I just wanted to concentrate on the film. And and to me, it seemed surprisingly, I would say, old-fashioned as a whole in terms of its pacing and, 
you know, the way the action is and everything in it, even though there's pretty much action from start to finish. Um, it feels like a kind of slow burn film more than these average. And they're writing it off a bit as like, uh, you know, they're trying to make it an action hero type film or comic book movie. And I didn't really feel that at all. I actually felt like there were f- f- there might be a fair few teenagers going to see it and there were in the cinema I was in, uh, quite a few younger people. But And there's one guy, you know, with his uh, I said I'll be back T-shirt on and things like that. And um, so, you know, you're going to get all these people with it just opening today, basically, in mm-hmm. the UK, properly at least. I think there were previews yesterday. But, um, you know, it... I think it will appeal to those diehard fans sufficiently, but it did feel somewhat elongated almost, which I don't think is going to appeal to the, you know, the necessarily just the comic book movie teens and stuff. I'm not sure, but, you know, but I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It felt pleasingly slow burn for me, you know. Uh, um it well it's a two-hour film i think it clocks in at exactly 120 minutes uh i did yeah. to look that up but anyway it's it's about that and um i i honestly never felt that it was slow at all um but at the no. same time they 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 took their time to um and when i say took their time i mean that properly uh to build up the characters uh and and yet at the same time provide enough action to keep the people that are into just hardcore action um interested or pleased and you know um but the story development was there the characters were there some of the stuff yeah sure um it felt familiar because they're trying to honor the first two movies um yeah, I, lo- I really quite like that though. The first, yeah, but you know, a lot of so a lot of critics like was just. I was keeping thinking, where's Bill Paxton? Like, I mean, there's this <laughs> re- reprise of the whole scene. Was it basically supposed to be the same scene, but they just recast all of the actors? And you know, right? Well, they couldn't they couldn't digitize everybody. I'm sure that would have been too expensive, <laughs> right? Uh, although they did a bang up job, <laughs> they couldn't get Bill Paxton back. And <laughs> But they did a bang up job uh, making um, the digital uh, Arnold this time, uh, you know, even better than they did in Salvation. And Salvation was and, still, and, you know. And yeah, the digital Arnold was probably one of the best things in it for sure. Um, I think they maybe spent all of their special effects budget, a lot of it on that, although some of the other effects were really, really good as a whole. But I did feel the effects on the the morphing, you know, guy with the big long arms coming out, you know, like spears sometimes. And and, and also on John Connor, when he becomes, you know, uh, something else and what, what happens with, I don't want to be giving spoilers now. That's it. did seem slightly like some people have said the CGI looks a little bit, you know, not absolutely horrendously good, but I don't really agree with that. I thought it was pretty, you know, as good as they could get it nowadays throughout mm-hmm. the whole film. But, um, you know, you could say, well, maybe they could have toned down the CGI a little bit. And I would have liked that maybe because I liked the whole recreation of the 80s thing. And, you know, it didn't feel like, <laughs> you know, everyone was sort of in dealy boppers and walking down the street listening to whatever was big in 1984 and stuff. It wasn't like, it didn't feel really over the top, it, but it just felt like convincing LA in 1984. 
and I would have had no problem if the whole film had been set in that era or something. But then the, the storyline, you've got to admit, is pretty confusing, and it goes, first of all, to... Well, anyway, I can't remember, basically, but it goes to 2017 at the end. Honestly, and, I didn't uh, think it was confusing at all. Um, oh, that's just me, obviously. Yeah, just, well, no, I, I don't know. Maybe it was confusing to other people, but I just enjoyed it tremendously, uh, and I, I didn't think it was confusing. I also didn't think that... What, what some critics and other people have mentioned, what that was basically a remake of the first uh, uh, and second films. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, they revisit those yeah. timelines, absolutely. Um, and, but, but it's more like they're paying homage to it and they're using what they have without necessarily disrespecting the, uh, the, the first and second film. So. <clears throat> and it would be impossible to bring back the original. Bearing in mind that this is a you know twelve certificate film in this country, you know they can't obviously unless they had CGI Arnie throughout the whole thing, which would be kind of ridiculous, really. You know they're not going to have the original Terminator in this going around in the green jacket. But then towards the end of the film, when we see the most aged-looking Arnie, he's in that green flak jacket again. You know as he was in the original Terminator, which mm -hmm. I thought was quite a good nod to that, and. You know, the script makes mention of the fact that he's not now, what's the word, I forgot, not, uh, uh, you know, out of use, basically, not defunct or whatever. And, and you know, there's the idea of not really how long can Arnie come back for these films, you know. And I know if they make it, I mean, I know they're planning to make a sequel to this one at least, and if not more, but it's going to become, I wouldn't want them to make a running joke of it. It's like, you know, Oh, Arnie's back again. And, and I felt like this one actually, even though I didn't have any problems with the smiles. And also I like the one at the end where he says it's disturbing when you're doing that. Because yeah, that, that like was, that was the one for, that was the one for me where I was like, okay, that was just once too many, but maybe, maybe that was well, just me. I don't know. I liked it because it seemed the humor wasn't really that over the top. It was just sort of. I would barely even call it, you know, that much humor because the storyline take central stage and it's not really trying to make Arnie funny. Like if you look back on maybe Terminator T2, you know, Judgment Day, some of it does look a bit like, you know, slightly corny now perhaps, mm -hmm. but, but then this is the problem with the Terminator films, you know, they can always look corny later on. And, you know, we have Arnold like putting up the thumb, giving the thumbs up at the start of this film. And I thought that was pretty good. It was just, it was just very well done as a whole, I think, and I'm not sure if the film has been given credit for that by critics. Let me let but... me ask you a few questions. Before you saw this film, did you one um, watch any of the trailers, and two, did you wa uh, read any of the reviews? Uh, I've looked at the I looked at the IMDb message board, uh, which has descended into people. Uh, trying to wish um, death upon each other mainly and things like this um, and also people just writing stuff about there's too much CGI or the CGI doesn't look good so you know you just give up after a while and I just thought well I'll just go and see it mm -hmm. especially with Cameron telling me well Dirk's put up a good review for it and then somebody else this Neil Hampton designer guy, he put up a review last night and he's in the UK and he said he really enjoyed it. So I thought, well, I'll just give Terminator films a chance anyway, really, 
because it's the same as what I did with Terminator 3 and I didn't go and see Terminator Salvation at the cinema actually mm-hmm. but that's because on Schwarzenegger wasn't in it so you know yeah I, I enjoyed this more than Terminator 3 as a whole I would say absolutely yeah so same it's, here same here and I and I think it it connects with um where the second one leaves off pretty well um so I I don't know why critics have such a hard on uh, for this film in a negative way. I, I really don't get it. Um, an, an inverse hard on. An inverse hard on, right. Like, why they're so just, flaccid for <laughs> for this film. They've got so they were in they were in some aroused state and then they become so enraged by something about the film, you believe it was a political issue, that the, the hard on went back into the body and wouldn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> this actually can happen. It's a medical complaint. And um, do you think that they don't like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that's what it comes down to, because they associate him with his him being a Republican and uh, you know the governor and all that business? Well, if I, you know, that's an interesting question, and to to analyze that, we'd have to look at what some of these reviewers um, said about his movies of the last couple of years because this is not his first movie um since he stopped being the governor so no but they were pretty harsh on most of them as far as i'm aware in fact before this one there was the trailer for maggie as well as the star wars the force awakens did you Mm -hmm. get those trailers Mm -hmm. in holland i have uh, well anyway maggie stars abigail breslin who was in little miss sunshine of course all right and it's it's got honest fortune in it and it says um, you know, uh, at the, it has like festival stuff coming up in it, so which is pretty unusual for an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, really. So, but it's—I don't really know what it's about, but it's about the girl being quarantined. I don't know if she's turned into a zombie or what, but he's her dad and he's supposed to look after her. And yeah, I think you know, and it's saying, and it comes up like Arnold Schwarzenegger gives a fantastic performance, <laughs> you know, and it's not really. I mean, well, you don't watch uh, Terminator Genesis and go, oh, it really was fantastic in this. But, uh, you know, when actually within the confines of his role, I think he played it really well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he kept it straight in terms of just being, you know, the Terminator, not going into sort of lots of random thumbs up and kind of, you know, I'll be back stuff just all the time, you know. Right. I, no, they were very respectful in that way. And you Ter- know, Terminator Three felt a bit like fan service to me a lot sometimes, and it was. I hated that. I it I was just, just like I didn't like Rise of the Machines they, at all. They did stuff basically by just going like, okay, what did James Cameron do in the original film? And he used that that effect where you know Arnold is walking down the hallway and with the you know the gun and the flowers dropping them and all this kind of business, and it go, and it goes into that sort of shaky or well, shutter sort of thing where it's quite flickering and you know it's all dramatic like <laughs> we've got a, and this film never did any any of that repeat you know sort of just repeating it just for the sake of it yeah. which i was glad about you know do you feel that given um the script and the film as is but the only thing different um if we would make that that some of the other actors would actually reprise their roles also such as um Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean and uh, perhaps even Edward Furlong um yeah. 
do you feel the critics at that point would have a different opinion about this film if that was the only thing that would change in the new one? Yeah, definitely. I think that they would immediately give it a, a little bit of a smoother ride when if they saw that Linda Hamilton was in it, mm-hmm. even if it was just her playing, you know, the older Sarah Connor or something. Right. Although it would be really people would that, you know, if Amelia Clark was also in it at the same time as the young Sarah Connor, people yeah. would be like, well, they don't look similar and stuff. So they'd be criticizing it for that reason. But, um, I don't know. I think that the critics kind of like to criticize things anyway. Like if Edward Furlong was in it now, they'd be making jokes about him looking like some kind of, you know, stoner or something. Or, you know, they think they're going a well-known drug addict or whatever. I mean, even if he was perfectly fine now and, you know, they'd just jump on anything. Uh, you know, they'd say Michael Bean, who hasn't been in a good film for 20 years. <laughs> it's, just, it's just that, really. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that that's that's just typical and it's lazy critic behavior really where they just, I think in a way it's good to just sort of go, you know, in a new direction, but on the other hand, and and some critics did describe it as a reboot, which I don't really see it as, but you know, uh, you know, it's like with Amelia Clark that I couldn't really see her doing, doing any um, pull-ups and stuff. So you kind of, she just looked like this cute version of Linda Hamilton, really, instead of... So there's a certain discrepancy there, but, you know... Yeah, but that can be talked away with the fact that, you know, there is a slightly different uh, timeline. I mean, she she got a, a, a birthday present for her ninth birthday, um, and I don't want to tell exactly what that is yet, because in case people haven't seen the film yet, right, it should be a, maybe a little bit of a surprise. Well, it's... Yeah, I like the director's coverage of the... And and so that got changed. Some people have complained about it that, oh, they're pulling the Star Trek trick where um, what J.J. Abrams did and all that. But I thought about that while I was watching the film and I realized, you know what, if any film series has the right to fucking do that, it would be um, either you know, Back to the Future or the Terminator film, because they've always been about time travel. Um, so I had, I had no problem with that whatsoever. And I, I, th- I thought they used it very well and very cleverly. Um, what was interesting though, is that we now have a second Sarah Connor, uh, played by a, uh, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, actress. And I just, that, that's interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the TV series. I have uh, only seen brief glimpses of it, you know. And- okay, well, that was uh, uh, Sarah Connor was portrayed by Lena Headey. Headey, I'm not. Oh I'm yeah, not sure. yeah. So, and yeah. she's also in Game of Thrones. Yeah. E- exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's you know sort of interesting. Um, you mentioned the three D part a little bit earlier. And that's actually something for the podcast I want to do a segment on at some point more elaborate than what I'm uh, about to discuss about it right now. But it turns out that a lot of movies that are in 3D were never actually shot in 3D, but they were uh, 3D-ified, if you will, in post-production. Mm-hmm. Um, and, for example, I saw the new Jurassic Park film 
and it turned out that was done in post also. And I didn't know that. So when I saw in the theater, I was just really disappointed by how flat the 2D or the 3D felt uh, to me in, in, in that film. Yeah, It um, wasn't even... I imagine not, not that I saw it in 3D, but it, it probably wasn't even as good as uh, Jaws 3D. <laughs> so, <I just> <laughs> well, uh, the 3D wasn't as good as uh, My Bloody Valentine 3D, uh, the one from no, 2009, which I bring up only because I had watched that just days prior to it. And I was I was blown away by how, how well the 3D worked in that particular film. Um, but for the Terminator film, yeah, once I found out it wasn't actually shot in 3D, I refused to go see it in 3D because you pay the extra money for it. Um, Quite a lot, really. And, and, then, and you risk getting a headache from those darn glasses. You can't really see it properly anyway. It's right. Like, unless you sit at the right of the back in the center, and then there'll be a, like... A rowdy group of, uh, you know, assholes, dudes back there <laughs> having a party and stuff. Some people, the amount of food they take in there is incredible. It's like people taking a whole meal. And, um, well, even if you sit right back there, I just find it blurry a bit. And just, you know, I went to see the last Divergent film, or as Cameron calls, not James Cameron, but. God, God, Cameron. Um, <laughs> Our Cameron, you mean? Yeah. He calls them the detergent films. I mean, I sat at the side and I just liked watching that film as a whole. But, you know, uh, the 3D is just not, you can't just sit anywhere in the theater and it'd be okay. Right. It just, right. but I just carried on sitting there anyway. I just couldn't be bothered moving, really. That said, um, I, I, now that I know I really like Terminator Genesis, I do actually want to go back to the theater and watch it in 3D anyway, just to see if they did a better job with this one, um, making the 3D in post. I don't know. It, it could be probably sometimes the chain of, you know, the company of the, you know, theaters, as they say in America or cinemas here. And I went to showcase today and they seem like really one of the best in terms of, even though it wasn't showed in the biggest cinema they've got there, mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was still fine. And it was like, right. it just kind of reminded me of watching it, at my home cinema when I was growing up, you know, which was a medium-sized, old, kind of rusty cinema, really. But ideal for that old experience if you were watching something like the original Terminator. Right. And uh, Which, you know, almost has a grunginess to it. But, uh, I mean, this is, if anything is lacking in this, is that. It's that sort of aspect of, you know, rough around the edgesness of it. But then, but then really T2 didn't have that either, so... So, you know. Right. But yeah, I, I think... Two, two, uh, Terminator 2 was pretty polished also. That's absolutely true. This is pretty polished as well. But yeah. I, I thought it was still good, and, and I like the flashbacks, and it all felt like basically like a prologue film more sure. than anything to me. And um, I can see them going a little bit more straight ahead with the storyline in a following one. Did you go to after the wait till after the credits had gone a bit, and then... Um, we walked out and then we went back into the theaters oh. to see if there was something after the credits. So was there something during the credits? There was something during the credits, yes. Within the, within the first probably 30 seconds or so of the credits. Because sometimes I really like rushing out after that in a way, because I, I do have a problem sometimes with stumbling over and then crashing into other people as I'm exiting the cinema. And then we all end up on the floor, like in a group hug. But, but and then, and I didn't want that to happen. Let me ask you, uh, 
<clears throat> one final thing about the Terminator Genesis film. Was there anything that you absolutely hated about this film? Well, in the, I don't even say I hate, but in, in the end credit, you know, there was like this kind of emo, well, not emo, but, you know, just sort of like rock anthemic uh, sort of like American, you know, what they modern day version of sort of evanescence type music, but not as good as that, really. Just sort of, you may as well put on the bloody tune from the Wombles or something, or just Jack and Ori. These are children's programs here. James, thank you so much for joining us on this segment, and um, hopefully we'll have you back again at some point. And for now, we're moving on to a next segment. There are two Blu-ray releases that I find worth mentioning on this particular episode, and the first one for Blu-ray is It Follows. It will be released July 14th of 2015, Blu-ray and other formats. And the second one to keep your eyes open for is Ex Machina on also July 14th, 2015, Blu-ray and other formats. Back in April 2014, I did a Skype interview with director Richard Stanley over satellite connection. The sound quality leaves something to be desired. However, that's the nature of Skype over a satellite connection. With that piece of history planted firmly in our mind, I present, without further ado, Richard Stanley. Richard, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Well, it's a pleasure being here, ma'am. I'm sorry it's audio only because it makes me feel a bit like Donovan's brain talking out of a box, but great pleasure to be here. Right now, we're first going to talk about documentaries. Um, Richard, I, I don't know if you remember, but I once wrote a review on Facebook for The White Darkness. Right, okay. I'm fond of that one. You don't use that, what I refer to, the, the voice of God that explains everything, how it is, and, and basically dictates to you how to think about what you're seeing. The reason for not doing that may well come from, from your background in anthropology, where you try to be more an observer and let your subjects tell the story rather than you indoctrinate their voice for them. Yeah, this is totally on the money. Now, that's been a consistent approach to um, leave out the voiceover and not to try and write any of the material in the documentaries and to let them speak for themselves. But it's also a very non-commercial approach that actually um, resulted in a lot of that material not making its way into the outside world. With the Afghan film, people kept feeling uneasy and that without a voiceover telling us um, who were watching and which side these guys were on and whether they were pro-West or pro-communist or pro-Muslim, and um, the same in the Haiti film, and the same in Secret Glory, where people kept wanting us to have a voiceover saying, that, reminding us like yet again that the Nazis are the greatest evil in history, etc., etc. But I was hoping always that um, the music could um, speak for the narrator, because you can usually tell Simon's scores are very expressive. And um, you can usually tell when something is bad or evil, because the music will subtly tell you that and give you some degree of, uh, of moral judgment. But, um, yeah, it has been very, very tricky that way around. And I've done a fair amount of regular documentary work as well. It's just so normal that it's under the radar. I did a show for um, BBC Two called The Last of the Medicine Men with an explorer frontman called Benedict Allen, which just looked like normal television, complete with... Um, voiceover and a, a front man in a khaki outfit talking to the camera in a hushed voice, um, David Attenborough style. And um, 
we did that mostly just to show that um, we could make normal-looking documentaries when we wanted to, um, that um, the other material was a matter of choice rather than that was simply the, um, the only thing we could do. And um, yeah, last year I participated in two different regular cable TV documentaries about um, the, the Nazi occult, both of which were um, frankly pretty superficial, but again, um, behave like normal television and turn up on the Discovery Channel and stuff. Whereas um, the ones that um, I'm actually fond of, um, Voice of the Moon and White Darkness and Secret Glory and now The Other World, are, um, have a much harder time finding their way onto um, conventional television or its distribution. Mostly because people can never figure out whether they're um, potentially dangerous or not. They get, very, they get left um, uneasy by the fact that they're not being told um, what to think. They want to be told that the Mujahedin and the Afghan film are terrorists and that this is bad. Or they, um, you know, they want to be told that the Nazis are evil. Or um, to be told what to think about the problem in Haiti as to whether we're on the side of the, the Christian missionaries or the, um, the voodoo priests. But, um, yeah, it's something we've obviously hesitated to do. It's also, as you say, because of anthropology, when you're dealing with a lot of primary sources, it seems um, to muddy the waters to edit it or to um, change it too much. With um, Secret Glory in particular, I was um, very careful not to include any data that wasn't coming from a primary source because I knew it was um, dealing with the Holocaust. And when you make any kind of claims about something that momentous, you, you really have to um, check your facts and make certain that um, the data is there. I, I think The Secret Glory is, is one of the first documentaries that, that I've seen, at least, that explores that topic in a serious way. And, um, you know, as opposed to uh, the kinds of documentaries that you see on, uh, on the History Channel now. Yeah, well, they, they seem to be so enthralled still by Hitler. Um, by um, the, the magnitude of World War II, that um, they almost can't get to the story without being caught up in the tale of Hitler's rise to power and the rise of the Nazis, which is such a big story that it always overwhelms everything else. And in real life, the occultists and the folk like Otto Rahn and the different um, esoteric um, researchers who are involved were very marginal figures. Like, I don't think the lead character in Secret Glory, Otto Rahn, ever even met Hitler, or probably even saw him. So um, I do include some scenes from one of Hitler's rallies, but it's edited in such a way that Hitler is, not, is never seen. And instead, there's a brief glimpse of Heinrich Himmler falling asleep in his seat. There was a tiny bit of footage where Himmler was nodding off. And I thought, okay, well, I'll show Himmler, who was Otto's boss, falling asleep in his seat in row number three at the rally. But um, as <laughs> some sense of um, how far away from the true levers of power these characters were. Otto Rahn, um, it, it was my understanding that he was, um, you know, before the Nazi um, regime became as big as they as they became, um, that he was gay or, you know, openly so, perhaps not quite as openly as, as one could be these days. Um, but it seems to me that he made that move into that world only as a survival mechanism. You know, um, not everybody was able to be a rebel and, and fight that um, because 
they'd have their heads chopped off in, in a heartbeat. Yeah, and to Otto's credit, he does realize how bad it is once he joins the SS and there's a, a point where he sees what's going on in the camps where he, um, fortunately, for, um, put it on paper and um, wrote down how um, appalled he was by what was going on, which I guess was also some part of, I, I keep wondering whether it also wasn't part of Otto's thoughts about how he would be perceived by posterity. I think he was smart enough to already be leaving a paper trail for um, future academics and um, was to go on record in 1939 and that he was um, not at all happy by what was happening with Reichskristallnacht and the, um, the anti-Semitic policies. But um, to what extent um, that was him safeguarding his academic reputation for um, and sensing that the day would come when the files would be opened in the future and um, the material would be reappraised, I don't know. Yeah, he was obviously in an impossible position by then. Um, as I sometimes think of Otto as being a bit like a werewolf as well, and that he was probably um, half turning into a Nazi and being um, kind of freaked out by what he was becoming. In many ways, he had to live not a double life, but a triple life. And, and so therefore, his suicide, whether staged or not, actually in a way becomes an heroic act and a believable one, if that makes sense. Yeah, in a crazy way, he's a martyr to his weird faith. Um, which is certainly one of the um, few martyrs, modern martyrs for the, the Qatar faith. And um, thus probably deserved his own stained glass somewhere. But um, yeah, Otto was always very aware of his image. I noticed this from the very beginning that 90% um, of the surviving photographs that we have seem very staged, in that he's often um, posing, and um, at least one of them resembles the poster for a German mountaineering movie for The Holy Mountain, The Heilige Berg by Otto Frank. The one of the man stepping from one rock to another seems like a almost a deliberate attempt to recreate a mountaineering movie poster of its period. So I suspect he was always thinking about his future image and the way he wanted to present himself. When he's shown writing at his desk, he's wearing a beret to show he can speak French and is there writing the book. But uh, yeah, I'm very suspicious of um, Otto's pictures and also comparing um, the first-hand accounts to um, his own account in his books, he's obviously um, massaging the facts quite a lot, in that it's clear that there were any number of folk with him when he was um, exploring the caves here in the south, but in his own book he claims he went alone, um, was accompanied only by his cat, and um, yeah, fails to make mention of anyone else. So I, I suspect Otto in his own way was writing his own legend. Um, was looking forward to the future when all this material would be um, uncovered. And and then it's a shame, of course, that a lot of that got destroyed by... Um, was that his mother or his grandmother? Well, the running story is that his mother burned all of his writing at the end of the war. This is a story I've been told many times, whether this is to cover up his homosexuality or um, for what reason, I'm not sure. And um, The... The part of the mystery is that there's a missing book in that um, in his second book he um, very annoyingly ends the book with a trailer um, saying that I will tell you everything in the uh, next volume in the third part. Uh, moreover, describes the um, pile of pages that's going to constitute the, um, the third book. He says the pages are already lying on the desk in front of me and I'm, I'm about to sit down and start preparing them. 
and this is like three years before he dies, but the manuscript of the third book, of course, is missing, as always seems to be the case with um, esoteric trilogies. Getting hold of the third and final part always seems to be a problem. Yeah, whether or not his mother really burned the manuscript, or whether the manuscript is sitting in a safe somewhere, or is in someone's drawer, or in a filing cabinet that hasn't been opened yet, yeah, remains hard to tell. Another problem with the story is that um, when Otto died on the mountain, his body was covered with snow for until the spring, and must have lain hidden beneath the snow for about six months. And it's inconceivable to imagine that an SS Obersturmführer, who is being pursued after by internal investigators within the SS, would be able to vanish for six months without the guys at least going to his house to check to see if he was there or going to his office and um, riffling through his papers or um, confiscating anything that might give a clue as to where he would have gone. So, um, yeah, I often wonder where that material went and whether it was really just burned by the mother. As a reminder, we are talking about uh, Richard's documentaries right now, and, and mostly we've been focusing on The Secret Glory, which, if you haven't seen it, you should try and get a hold of it. It's on the uh, collector's edition of Dust Devil, and um, you may still be able to find a couple of copies of this absolute gem. I should use this opportunity to make a note on the only available copy, the one that's um, on the, um, the Dust Devil box kit from Subversive Cinema which is that it's fine, except that the second half of the documentary is out of sync, which is very, very, very frustrating. Uh, this is because they screwed up the audio transfer when they went from PAL to NTSC, and it loses sync from about chapter six, which really set my teeth on edge. Yeah, unfortunately, it was a freebie with the Dust Devil box kit, so there was no way that I could persuade Subversive to, um, to pull the entire edition and replace the disc once I found out. Is that the only technical issue that you have with this uh, release? It's in reasonable shape. The transfer is pretty muzzy on um, Secret Glory, but um, Voice of the Moon and White Darkness are both in excellent shape. And, and what about Dust Devil itself? Yeah, I think um, the subversive version of Dust Devil is probably the definitive version. We made a high-quality transfer of Dust Devil. There is a high-resolution Blu-ray quality um, transfer out there. But uh, unfortunately, when um, Subversive Cinema went under, there was um, considerable acrimony between the two original partners in Subversive Cinema. And ever since then, they've been um, tussling over the um, high-resolution masters. But I'm hoping that at some point within the next year or so, we'll finally be able to yeah, get, regain access to not only Dust Devil, but to um, Secret Glory and um, Voice of the Moon and White Darkness. And, um, get the whole package out on Blu-ray. I uh, recently watched Voices of the Moon uh, for the first time. I'm, I'm still very much uh, impressed by it. That's very much a film from another world. I mean, with um, Voice of the Moon, it's shot on clockwork bolexes. Well, shooting on hand-cranked cameras was really the only way that we could get into the places that we wanted to go. Because um, the problem being that um, the batteries on normal video cameras get eaten up very quickly, and this is still a problem today. So um, news gathering crews need to recharge their batteries from their car cigarette lighters. There's a standard way of recharging from the, the car, which means that generally news gathering crews never go very far from the road. And um, as there's only about two navigable roads in Afghanistan, one that goes across the middle of the country sort of laterally and one straight up along a tubular, 
it kind of restricts the areas we can get into. So um, pretty much 100% of the footage I'd seen from Afghanistan up to that point had been shot at the side of the road in um, either Helmand province or around Kabul or Bagram. And um, no one had been crazy enough to actually go off-road and into um, the Hindu Kush or into the forest. And Afghanistan is a heavily forested country as well. There's huge cedar forests out there, which we just never ever see, just like we never see glaciers or um, basically it's high mountains with permanent snow caps and glaciers that feed rivers that go down river valleys. And those valleys are very lush and fertile. And by the time you get out onto the plains, it becomes very, very arid. And then it goes further south down into the desert. And um, from what we see, we all imagine that the country is very much like Morocco or some kind of um, completely arid country. And yeah, my, my idea was always to try and get into um, Kafiristan to um, try and get into the heartland of the Hindu Kush. Because um, apart from everything else, Kafiristan's only been Muslim since 1910. Islam arrived in the area in yeah just over a century ago, up to which time um, they had a fertility goddess. Uh, they had a goat god and a, a, a trickster god and a whole pantheon of pagan deities and um, proper old-fashioned shamans and people going into um, trance states and channeling the spirits of the animals they hunted and stuff. And I figured um, 100 years isn't very long. I mean, they've had a hell of a lot that's come through, different wars and different problems. But I figured it was probably the closest I was going to get to finding out what people were like back in um, year zero or before the, um, the coming of Christianity and Islam to see people who are um, only very recently in a, um, a very um, wild and um, primal state. I imagine most of Europe and Asia would have been like that back in, um, in BCE. So yeah, the chance to actually enter that world and um, spend time in a pre-technological, um, pre-literate environment was um, very tantalizing. It's just there was a war in the way. One of the powerful effects that you get from um, not having a narrating voice is that it forces you to think for yourself. And it does, because these images, you know, they, they crawl in your mind, they start haunting you, and, 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 and they really force you to think for yourself, whether you want it or not. Yeah, and this is also a deliberate um, maneuver on our behalf. And that, that's kind of what we're looking for. The new one, The Other World, which um, we just completed last year, which is probably the, um, the most gentle film I've ever shot from the point of view that it deals with the supernatural rather than genocide or um, war or any kind of um, destructive crisis. It's um, yeah, very much the same way, even though we've included ourselves in it because um, we tell our own accounts of what happened. But... Um, it's edited in the way that um, leaves the audience open to um, decide for themselves whether the um, people are, are essentially crazy or um, whether what they're saying has any validity. And I've also, um, in um, other world, apart from there being once again no voiceover to tell us, um, we also allow all of the witnesses to um, talk for a little bit too long. Um, all the characters are kept on screen long enough that we can get a sense of what they really like when they're not um, putting it on for the camera, which again gives the audience the chance to figure out for themselves whether they should trust them, whether you can believe the outrageous claims being made or whether these people are lying or um, essentially making it up.
And yeah, I also include um, a few little details such as um, the um, what um, drugs the one character is on and um, their um, a bit of their clinical or medical history. Because again, I didn't want to um, be making a film where you've got work which is fundamentally supporting the supernatural by completely ignoring um, any of the mitigating factors. I wanted to make certain that somewhere within the film all the relevant data was there, which would then leave the, um, the viewer to decide whether to actually um, trust what the people were saying or to um, go along with it or not. But yeah, very much the, um, the same approach. You're, you're talking about a, a movie that I've seen referred to as uh, L'Autre Monde, which is the other world in French. It, does it have a French title or you just refer to it in English? Is it going to be English or...? Um, well, we're waiting to try and get together an English language edition, which has been very frustrating in that there is a French edition, um, L'Autre Monde, which hopefully will be um, actually getting some theatrical play in France this summer. But um, the French producers have been very uninterested in um, putting together the English language edition. Uh, so far, um, the other world is, um, I'm not happy with the subtitling, the captions, and um, a fair number of things. So I'm not quite ready to, um, to put it out there. Which will, of course, be other words, one word. The mythological place inhabited by fairies, goblins, um, Various invisible demons, who um, yeah, some in fairyland or um, a um, spirit world or whatever one would like to call it. It seems to me that conventional scientists often dismiss anything from the supernatural by default. Well, it is very very difficult to um, get conventional scientists, academics, and yeah, archaeologists to. Um, pay attention to um, some of the, um, the weird little details that turn up because um, essentially they're all being funded by different grants and um, need to be doing um, the work that pays the, the bread and butter. And um, There's some areas where yes there's weird little question marks, there's things we don't understand and um, at the same time there's no real um, incentive, there's no real funding to um, pursue some of that work. I mean, I can see several areas where um, certainly there's something going on where um, you could actually apply scientific methods. I mean, for instance, in White Darkness, the, the Haiti documentary, from being out there, it was very, very clear to me that the Haitians really were getting possessed. They, they were certainly going into a real trance state. They weren't um, putting that on for camera. It was something that was happening naturally and spontaneously and even amongst children. So the, and it was also clear that the voodoo priests, the Hungans, could control that, that they could bring people out of a traumatic state and bring them back into um, the normal state of consciousness whenever they wanted to. That when someone's freaking out, voodoo Hungan goes in there and calms them down and detunes them. So um, the fact that it's repeatable, that um, these things happen and it's controllable, means that you can basically measure it. I mean, if you could only do a CAT scan, and um, find out what was going on in the, um, in the electroencephalograph of people's brainwaves, um, I do not doubt that you would actually see a mark, you would see something when that person became possessed. I'm sure that um, they would change their brain, the, the pattern of their brainwaves would probably register a change, just the same as when we're having an epileptic seizure or um, when we're actually having some, say, a, a dramatic change of consciousness, entering a meditative state. And the fact that... Um, 
the priests can put people into that place and then take them back again means that um, one should be able to um, wire people up and actually um, see what's going on in their brains. And I think we would see a physiological trace. We would see a we would see some kind of sign of, the, of what was actually happening. I was also half inclined to imagine that there might be a genetic predispensation amongst Haitians for getting possessed, because I was amazed that children as young as they were were getting possessed by the same um, deities. I mean, whether this is some kind of like um, culturally acceptable form of um, MPD, multiple personality disorder, or some kind of controlled form of epilepsy, or um, a genuine possession or, or, or form of the supernatural, I, I do not know. But the fact that it's observable, repeatable, and demonstrable means that um, it's, there, it's wide open for research. I mean, I think of similar issues being there are weird side effects of lightning, such as um, ball lightning, which clearly exists. It's been um, photographed, documented, and my mother. My mother's had a big experience of ball lightning when lightning struck her home. So it's clearly um, real, but um, for the time being, it remains in the, um, the category of the, um, the supernatural or the, the, the inexplicable. I mean, here in, here in Montsegur, in the castle, the, um, there's an alignment with the slits in the castle walls that tells the time very accurately that um, lights up every midsummer at the exact same time and has a, a sort of reverse effect at midwinter. And, um, it's plainly been very carefully designed that way. But um, the um, official archaeological reports on the castle um, dismiss the effect and say it has never been scientifically observed, um, verified, or um, investigated, and then just skim on to another subject mostly because the folk writing the report don't want to deal with who built that and what it was for. Uh, you know, why did the people who designed the place need to know that information and, you know, what, um, what the heck was it was about. But as it's so complicated to deal with, it, they tend to just, you know, gloss over it in a sentence and, um, and fly onwards. Trying to come up with definitive, credible proof of the supernatural has always been a tricky thing for human beings to do. That's for sure. You've collaborated on a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I've always been a huge, huge admirer of Hodor, Hodorowsky. Um, but, um, yeah, Dune obviously is one of those great unrealized projects. Um, I guess I had some insight into it simply because of my experience on Island of Dr. Moreau. In that, um, I've had enough time to figure out all the reasons why um, Island of Dr. Moreau could never have been made the ways I wanted to make it. Uh, I could see roughly how the, the system works that way around. So, um, yeah, um, Dune was obviously such a fabulous project, but at the same time, it's like watching a beautiful, rare animal running into an electric fence. And, uh, there was really no way that Hollywood was ever going to get behind it. The Island of Dr. Moreau, what the fuck happened? Well, the true story is, uh, in a nutshell, and it's pretty pretty dry. And, um, I wanted to um, remake Island of Dr. Moreau ever since I was a kid because I loved the book and I hated the AIP version, which I saw when it first came out. And I remember leaving the cinema as a kid and thinking, what the fuck? Uh, no, it's nothing like the book. How could they do that? <laughs> and, um, 
from that day onwards, I think, gestating in my um, adolescent mind was always a sense of what I would really have liked the movie to be like. I mean, um, yeah, basically I'd worked on the script for a number of years, and um, post-Dust Devil, it was really the only thing I had to sell to offset the um, post-production costs on Dust Devil. I had to make a deal on um, the Moreau script. Under normal circumstances, that was a suicidal thing to do, because at that point in time, I never had the power in Hollywood to be able to make that movie. I mean, it was, it, Francis Ford Coppola got to make Apocalypse Now because he's coming off the back of Godfather 1 and 2. I was coming off the back of Dust Devil, which hadn't even been released in the States. So, yeah, I was in a very um, powerless place. It wasn't like I just had a, um, a mega hit on my hands. So, um, yeah, first of all, I had to um, basically relinquish the Moreau rights in order to um, yeah, sort out the overhead from Dust Devil. Um, then um, Moreau went into the hands of um, Edward R. Pressman who is a very, very um, astute producer, who hired uh, Michael Herr, the um, screenwriter from Apocalypse Now, he wrote the voiceover, to um, polish the script, and um, then got the script to Marlon Brando, and parked a million dollars in escrow to get him to read it, and um, Brando said yes. The uh, moment Brando agreed to play Moreau, suddenly everyone wanted to be in the movie. And within a few weeks, I managed to get commitments from um, James Woods to play his sidekick. And um, the big one was um, Bruce Willis to um, play the castaway. The, I flew out to the set of 12 Monkeys, which was shooting in Baltimore at the time, and um, met with Bruce Willis. I'm, in fact, an extra in the transit lounge scene in um, 12 Monkeys, which is not shot in an airport, but shot in the big union hall in Baltimore. And, uh, got uh, Bruce Willis to agree, uh, at which point suddenly New Line wanted to get involved, because we now had a Bruce Willis movie, which was um, Ed's strategy all along. And, um, and that he basically was waiting for a larger um, company to come in and buy him out and take over the project, as Ed didn't have the wherewithal to tackle something that big on his own. And um, New Line then came on board, took over the project, and um, suddenly it became a, um, a, a big New Line movie with um, Stan Winston doing the effects and Bruce Willis. Um, our problems began when Bruce dropped out. The um, rationale that I was given at the time was that he didn't want to be in Australia that long. By now we'd built sets in um, northern Queensland and had found all the locations. It's um, in fact shot on the same exact locations as Thin Red Line. Um, Murray Boyd, the location manager, who is the, also the location manager on Thin Red Line, simply sold all the locations on to Terence Malick. So um, whenever I watch that, I'm always delighted to see these different characters wandering through um, places that we, we wrecked for Moreau. But um, yeah, Bruce's um, problem was that he didn't want to um, be outside the United States for that long. Apparently, this was in the midst of the divorce from Demi. And um, Bruce dropped out of the project. When we lost Bruce Willis, suddenly we didn't have a bankable leading man to justify the budget, which at that point in time was looking at, uh, at being around $25, um, $30 million US. And we'd already expended a lot of money on the ground. So a new leading man had to be found. I was dispatched to Tokyo to um, talk to Val Kilmer, who was then attending the premiere of Batman um, Forever, I think it was. 
um, um, was at the um, the height of his stardom. I'd met him once before on the um, set of Heat, the Michael Mann movie, and um, yeah, I had to persuade Val to do the movie. Um, the problem was Val didn't have enough time to do the movie. Um, and, um, he didn't have enough days in his schedule to um, be able to shoot the, the Bruce Willis part, to be able to shoot the castaway. Nonetheless, we needed Val in order to secure the investment and to stop Newline from backing out of the project. So um, a solution had to be found. And, um, Val desperately wanted to work with Brando. So um, what happened is we pushed him into the James Woods part. Exit James Woods. Um, suddenly, um, Val Kilmer is now... Um, Marlon Brando's assistant, and um, the, once again the castaway part was wide open. But um, we were able, thanks to having Val on board, to um, to cast a, a slightly um, less A-list um, actor. We went for Rob Morrow from a show called Northern Exposure, which was popular at the time, <coughs> and she uh, filling in as the castaway. Then all proceeded very well, all was fine, up to the point when suddenly Brando couldn't come. The um, next problem was that um, the murder happened in Mulholland Drive, and the um, Cheyenne, the daughter, committed suicide. Um, at the point when Cheyenne died, Brando was working on a film called Divine Rapture, which was shooting in Ireland. Um, the press responded by they succeeded in getting photographs of Brando in his underwear through the hotel window while he was there in, in Ireland. And suddenly there were photographs of fat Brando splashed everywhere. Brando's daughter was dead. Um, the story was that Brando was having a nervous breakdown and couldn't work. Divine Rapture closed down. Not only did Divine Rapture close down, but it was never resumed. The entire film was written off as an insurance loss, uh, which was very, very scared because um, the first day of shooting was approaching and essentially we'd lost Brando. We now had a, um, an expensive um, Val Kilmer movie. Plus, um, Val was crazy. And, um, so yeah, um, the situation became pretty much untenable around about then. I tried finding alternative Moreau's. We went out to um, Robert Duval, in fact, were busy courting like crazy to try and um, get to show up in place for Brando. But um, nonetheless, the writing was on the wall, and um, the last straw is when we actually got to what's meant to be the first week. Not only did we not have Moreau, but a hurricane blew in. So um, by day one already, there was um, horizontal rain, um, strong wind. The only weather cover sets we had were um, the interiors of Moreau's laboratory and the, um, the big house, and we had no Moreau. We had no Brando to be able to actually um, shoot those scenes. So, um, yeah, the decision was made by um, Tim Zimmerman, the line producer, and a bunch of the other folk when the hurricane blew in to close the production down. Uh, and at that point in time, um, various people in the Time Warner boardroom and, started, and uh, in the New Line boardroom started looking more carefully at the script. Up to now, no one had really bothered reading the script that much. And now they noticed when reading the script that there was sex with animals going on in there. There was um, animals on drugs. There, were, uh, there was an anti-democratic message. Uh, democracy failed for the island. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just 
sex assaults and things that shouldn't have been happening in their opinion and the fax machines started whirring while the, the production was shut down with some um, continuous lists of delete this scene, change this scene, delete, delete, delete. Um, there were, by that stage I was um, feeding the faxes directly into the fire, uh, not even bothering to, um, to read the thing. But yeah, um, basically New Line paid me off at that point. Um, I was on a pay or play deal, they had to pay my entire salary. And yeah, along with me they um, closed down the entire crew the original DP, Darius Walski, who was more recently shot Prometheus, he'd come straight off um, yeah, Crimson Tide at that point in time, was let go. The um, composer, um, Zbigniew Preusner, um, from yeah, the Kislowski movies, was again um, told not to go on composing. Uh, um, the um, Preusner score was fucking never recorded or completed for um, Moreau, which really annoys me because it was going to be great. But, um, but yeah, the essentially the production got closed down. I was paid off, and um, yeah, at the point, then I heard about three months later that the movie was being revived, and that they'd managed to track down Brando. Uh, except that um, in the preceding time, they'd um, not only gotten Frankenheimer on board, they'd also um, gotten some guy to write a essentially a new script which uh, uh, took advantage of the existing um, locations and the, the big house that was already built and the different creature effects so it was essentially felt like a very hastily written um, update of the AIP version the same old um, Bert Lancaster uh, Michael York movie all the same kind of things happened and it kind of hits all the same beats so I suspect he sat down and watched that. I spoke to a guy who was on both shoots, who was on the crew from the dungeon with Bert Lancaster and on the set of the Frankenheimer version of Marlon Brando. And he said that the only difference between the two movies was that on the Don Taylor movie, everyone was drunk, whereas on the Brando version, everyone was on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Rumor has it that you found your way back on the set, though. Yeah, that's all true. Um, yeah, I heard about three months later that the movie had been revived and was pretty depressed about it. And that um, it seemed like a lot of wasted work. And um, one of the extras in the movie um, came and found me and um, said, look, you really have to go back. You have to um, go and see what's happening that um, if you could see what a fucking disaster it was, you would be cheered up because it's, uh, it's become a complete monstrosity. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it, it, I, I was talked into doing it to, as a way of um, cheering me up, plus it was a good way to, um, to see the cast again, to see Faruza and um, Ron Perlman and many of the good people who had been held to contract and Bill Hootkin was fast now um, and forced to come back even though um, they all hated the script. But um, Uline was um, threatening everyone with legal action if they walked the project. The only person who actually walked was um, yeah, Rob Morrow, the, um, the, who was meant to be playing the castaway, walked and they had to um, get David Zulis to step into his shoes. But um, everyone hated the script and there was so little script that um, no one really knew what was happening. So um, 
Yeah, and, and because uh, I knew some of the extras, I was able to get my hands on a overhead mask from one of the Stan Winston creatures. In fact, it looks a little like um, the creature from Funhouse, kind of a cleft palate bulldog. And, uh, went back on. Uh, I realized very quickly that because they decapitated the crew, that they had a totally new crew and technical people. Frankenheimer had brought all his own people. He had Billy Fraker shooting it and um, a whole bunch of different folk. Uh, it meant that no one knew who I was anyway, apart from the cast members. So I didn't need to wear the mask. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I got to sit in on the island of Dr. Moreau. And, um, yeah, there were, there were rumors afterwards that I was some crazy person out there in the rainforest plotting to blast the set. Uh, the truth was I was actually on set, and every time I was there, the only things they, directions they gave me was like, here, take an axe and destroy this thing, or um, now I want you to dance around and pour gasoline on things, smash things. So, <laughs> so I got to be a, a beast person extra. <laughs> and, and, and does your footage actually appear in the film? Yeah, I'm in there in the background. <laughs> <laughs> was it good therapy for you? It was. There um, was a good chance to talk. I mean, everyone was so bored out of their minds as well because day after day they weren't shooting. It was they still lost something like forty shooting days, and it went from um, something like thirty-five, forty million to seventy-five million. And um, yeah, Brando like upped his speed like four times, and um, it just became a, a monstrosity. So most of the time, people were sitting around. Uh, um, going through 12 hours of makeup and then sitting around for another like um, eight hours and then going through another four hours to take it all off again um, day after day. So it was a, a good chance to talk. You mentioned that it is true indeed that I'm not hallucinating uh, and that, that this was explored in a documentary. What was that documentary? Because I can't seem to pick which one that is. It hasn't been released yet. Um, it's a documentary being made by, it's completed I think, so it may have been in clip form or something. It's um, going to be put out by David Gregory at Severin, and it was edited by Doug Buck. Um, it does exist out there. Pretty much everyone involved in the movie, apart from Frankenheimer, who's dead, of course, done talks about it. Are you under any sort of contract yet that would prohibit you from saying anything nice or nasty about um, the island of Dr. Moreau? Um, not particularly, no. I mean, um, I've got no huge complaints about the personalities involved in that I've had enough time to um, to realize how the corporate battle was lost. And I could see that um, it was a matter of staying at the table too long. Just like when you're gambling, there was a point when we were winning big, when um, Ed Preston came on board, when Brando came on board, when Willis came on board. Um, we had a very strong lucky streak, but then... Um, there was a point when the luck turned on it, and um, really trying to make a movie that insane and that complex um, was never going to happen. And that um, nowadays I try not to write screenplays that involve non-human species, um, to, um, that many creatures, um, to, um, that many relics of other civilizations, but while also wanting to have scenes underwater and on the open ocean, etc. And um, it was too grand, and um, considering um, how dark it was and um, where the story went, it was unimaginable, really, that it would get made. It is a shame that some novels can explore all these things and become classics, and yet 
you can't put even 10% of it on film or it's just doomed. Yeah, unfortunately at this point, it's partially down to a perception, a misperception by Hollywood, which um, assumes that generally science fiction movies are action movies. And um, pretty much every sci-fi story, whether it's H.G. Wells or Philip K. Dick, is forced into an action movie um, size baggy. And um, not all sci-fi movies, sci-fi stories want to be action stories. And I think that's just, you know, especially when it comes to big budget sci-fi, and which is always perceived as like the summer, the summer action movie. It's um, very tricky to um, imagine that people will be able to um, make more movies than like 2001, so uh, it's, always, it's always a dream. Yeah, I guess the story of Hodorowsky's Dune is, um, is very much the same deal. And that it's simply um, too wild for um, yeah mainstream audience, and generally the, there's a subsidiary problem with adult sci-fi to begin with, that once you go over a certain budgetary level, it's really difficult to keep it R-rated, and um, when you're dealing with yeah, sex, um, drugs, cannibalism, um, bestiality, all the things that were going on in the Doctor Moreau script, uh, not to mention um radical delivery scenes and um, yeah, um, genetic mutation, it was always going to be a problem. Generally, um, a movie that size wants to be all ages and to be um, yeah, safe, safe for the family. There's one topic that you've been wanting to talk about, and we haven't even talked about that yet. A screenplay by Richard Stanley called Ground Zero. Yeah, I'm very fond of that script. I mean, I've been wanting to make it for about 20 years. And um, it would have died if um, it hadn't been for the fact that the damn thing keeps coming true. In that the um, the program to produce drone soldiers and the, um, the move towards actually um, deploying creatures like that, literally armed with weaponized with microwave weapons and things which were um, heat sensitive, and particularly used as they are in the script to patrol perimeters. I think the first place we'll see drones is um, literally patrolling. Um, containment barriers, like say between Israel and um, the occupied territories. Because um, so, droids are very good at going in straight lines and they're good at um, following um, people. Maybe um, they need to be a bit more sophisticated before we can actually use them in, um, in the heat of the action. But it's certainly something they're going towards. And I suspect within the next 10, 15, 20 years, it's something we're going to be seeing. And they will be a yeah, slave to um, remote operators in the same manner as they are in, in, in Ground Zero. Uh, I suspect the remote operators will be trained up in a similar way with um, video games and droid simulators and um, be very young and a bit like my nephews. But, um, so, yeah, Ground Zero, I would like to see reach the screen. It's had the problem of um, being um, the official hardware sequel. Um, the rights to hardware are disputed between um, MGM, Buena Vista, uh, the remains of Miramax, and half a dozen other people, which is the reason why in the last 20 years we've never been able to merchandise it. We haven't been able to license so much as a, a droid model kit or a comic book, let alone um, get a sequel off the ground. It could be easily possible um, if I were to change the title and um, sever any um, co connection with the hardware franchise and not call it Hardware 2, which um, thus far has been very off-putting to most producers. 
pretty much everyone who has been interested in doing the project only wanted to do it if it could be the um, the official hardware movie. If it was going to have to be called, um, say, Final Assembly or um, Dawn of the Droid or um, something else, um, they get um, markedly less interested. So, we'll, yeah, I'll just have to see with that one. But but after 20 years of, of having legal battles between who's holding copyrights and, and all that, um, does it make sense to now simply make a choice where you say, well, either it gets done as a non-official sequel or it doesn't get done at all? Yeah, I think it would have come down on the side of not getting done at all if um, it hadn't been for the fact that the scripts are good. And that um, every time I go back to it, it turns out that um, more of it has come true, or it's even more likely than it was, which, um, yeah, still has the capacity to terrify me. And um, my general mantra on it to different producers is that you don't make this movie, it will happen. And I'm sure it's much better to, <laughs> to show it as a movie and have some chance of um, kind of avoiding that eventuality. And I think there's a reason in a way that droids scare me, because uh, I've always been irrationally frightened of fucking cyborgs. And even today when I'm seeing Big Dog and the different um, cyborgs they have now moving and I'm hearing the, the whir of their servo motors, I find it gives me goosebumps. My flesh literally crawls. I get bumps on my arm. It's something similar to the fear we all have of inanimate objects moving by themselves. The um, wheelchair attacks the girl in the Changeling, the George C. Scott movie, or um, anything that moves by itself. It, it, it's irrationally frightening. Uh, I still have this phobia when it comes to droids. Yeah, and we can see from um, the way that drone aircraft have gone down what's going to happen very clearly. Uh, now, obviously, um, by using drones, you're distancing the people in charge from any form of like moral responsibility for what happens on the ground uh, very, very quickly. I, for one, would very much like to see the sequel, whether it's an official sequel or not, um, because it's it's been taken so long that I, I, I fear that it, if, if it doesn't get done under certain conditions, it just won't get done at all, um, which, which is a shame, but I, I'd rather at least see something happening. What would the budget be for, for, for the script as you envision it? Yeah, hard to say at this point. I mean, I haven't tried budgeting it in a while, but I'm thinking that it could be um, probably done in some, for about five these days. So, sorry, is that five million? Yeah. It is limited pretty much to one location. But, uh, but of course, there'd be huge pressure put on me nowadays to use um, CG, whereas I didn't want CG animated um, droids. Um, obviously, what we wanted to be was out, and out somewhere building droids and blowing them up. And, um, basically um, trying to do as much of it live as we could. Yeah, the one thing about Ground Zero, about the official hardware sequel that keeps it alive for me, is weirdly it still deals with something that I've never seen any other movie deal with, which is what happens if the droid is fully functional and is not running amok and malfunctioning and has not become taken control of the world and become super intelligent, but is fully functioning. Uh, is simply being deployed as a drone soldier as the tool that it was designed to be, which is, yeah, um, a theme that I've not seen touched on. Every single time the droids either have to run amok or um, 
basically um, develop um, a super consciousness like in the Terminator movies and take over the world. But something which actually examines the way that droids will be deployed and used by us, I, I, I've yet to, um, to come across. Uh, I think until someone does make that movie, I'm going to keep pushing it. Yes, what can people do to help the cost of, of the hardware sequel? Well, it's good just to be aware of it in the hope that one day our word will filter through to a producer who actually wants to see this piece. Well, these days it's, tr it's I guess, getting trickier than ever in that, um, yeah, right now Microsoft is putting a huge amount of money into um, developing drone soldiers and developing AI in general. There was a time when, uh, when yeah, when Microsoft were reading the script, at least one person that was reading it. But, yeah, I think they're... Um, it's still kind of off-message, and that obviously um, ground zero is a very negative view of um, how this technology might be deployed and how things might work out, which is a little off-message. They're developing them, they're going to run, they're going to be able to go up the sides of the buildings, they're going to be able to see you through walls, they can see heat and movement without even being in the same room, plus they have weapons like microwave beams, which can um, zap you without them even needing to be in the same room as you. They can see a, an outline through a wall and zap you from a distance. So um, yeah, I'm going to keep at it because I'm still scared by droids. It still bugs me. You mentioned the Terminator movies, and I, I, I think the Terminator movies or hardware has often been compared by that simply because you're dealing with a droid. To me, it's nothing like the Terminator movies at all. It's a very different animal, and I think actually your analogy or comparison to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 makes a lot more sense to me than Terminator. Yeah, that's completely true, uh, in that um, really hardware is um, coming out of a milieu of, um, of 80s um, slasher movies. Um, out of Argento, out of um, Texas Chainsaw movies, and out of the whole tradition of the last girl. And um, it simply um, reinvents the cliches by putting them in sci-fi form. But uh, virtually all of those things, from you know, hiding in the fridge, through the, in the, the blind thing, searching for one, and the different ways that Stacy tries to take the thing down each time it keeps on getting back up again, are uh, really um, slasher movie uh, tropes which um, the lighting is very adapted from Dario Argento, so I think that's very much the scene we're drawing on. But um, the climate of the, of the period, the um, late 80s, was such that everyone wanted um, Alien and Terminator robots. So it's been moved into that matrix. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's very much a, um, an old-fashioned monster movie. Do you not fear that a lot of people that do show potential interest go only by what their impression is of the first hardware, where the second one is no doubt very different than the first one. Yeah, I tried to make it as different as possible, of course, which is um, the usual suicidal set of decisions. Yeah, I'd have no interest in simply remaking the first movie, and I don't want to make another movie about a girl being chased around her lounge by an out-of-control cyborg, which um, is go I'm um, fine one off, but um, yeah, this time around I want to see the cyborgs under control doing what they're supposed to be doing. And um, the sequel is also set in the countryside, and that uh, most of the sequel is set in New Mexico. I thought, okay, let's move it out of the city, and I wanted to see what was going on in the, um, the rest of the country as well. And then I'd gotten a little tired of the, um, the future city setting, and thought, okay, uh, let's see what's, um, what's happening in the, on, the, um, on the Rio Grande.
Um, unfortunately for the script, um, it also deals with another issue that no one ever wants to mention, which is the proximity of Mexico. Uh, the economic imbalance between Mexico and the United States, which in the hardware world is assumed to have simply gotten far worse than it was before. Um, the droids, when we first meet them in the Ground Zero script, script are patrolling the Rio Grande, are patrolling the border to um, stop smugglers and wetbacks from getting ashore, which um, is one example of the way they'll probably be deployed, which is um, droids are very good at patrolling perimeters that no one else wants to patrol, um, remote things for guarding installations that um, absolutely no one wants to pay anyone to, um, to guard. And um, yeah, it struck me that the Rio Grande was a very long, difficult area to defend. And um, as um, hardware does jump into the world of um, what will happen when um, the Mexican population uh, outnumber the, um, the gringos in California and uh, um, New Mexico by um, not just a vast majority, but by by the time we get to hardware, which is maybe 2066, it's like um, four to one. And will they want to go on being um, underpaid for um, their labor to um, basically do all the work to keep the state running um, while receiving an adequate education and nickel aid, or whether they will want to take charge of things for themselves is um, yeah another um, legitimate sci-fi issue that um, we all ignore in our our summer movies because um, it's kind of a form of um, social sci-fi that's um, similar to Dr. Moreau that um, Hollywood doesn't like. And um, likes to imagine that things will roughly be the same, the status quo will be the same in the future. Rather than being inspired by horror films like the first one was uh, from, from the 80s, that this one is obviously still sci-fi, but goes more into the territory of one of your favorite directors, Sergio Leone. Yeah, it's Sergio Leone's Sam Peckinpah, because it's really a New Mexico um, siege movie. I would be right at home in Texas Battle Lab from uh, Pe uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, yeah, it wants to be an, it wants to be an Alamo type siege movie with droids, with um, yeah, obviously, yeah, elements of you know, the classic Mad Max style post-apocalypse scenario. Max Two is also really a siege movie, but um, that's very much where it wants to go. So it kind of wants to be a the wild bunch of droid movies. See, I I'm ecstatic right now because that's exactly the movie that I want to see. <laughs> that's exactly the movie I want to make. It's a, it's a fucking tragedy. It just needs a producer. <laughs> it also has the longest sustained fucking action scenes I've ever written. And that round zero gets has a lot of plot for about forty five pages, but from about page sixty, it's just one continuous escalating crisis. <laughs> would it would it help to make a visual, you know, teaser trailer or a full trailer for this film to get to generate some sort of interest? It may well do. It probably it probably helps to try and change its identity, because the problem is every time Hardware Two shows up on the radar, it's um, it's kind of blood in the water. Director Jennifer Lynch, Jen Lynch, had sort of alluded to it, it is that it seems that you either have to work on a no budget film for as an independent filmmaker. Or you need to completely sell out. This is not exactly her words, but it, it sort of comes down to it. Or you have to sell out and, and do a multi, multi, multi-million dollar movie, you know, where it's 50 million or up. 
um, but it's impossible to get a five to ten million budget anymore. Yeah, that's the problem. That's a huge problem. I mean, pretty much everyone agrees on that because it's really, really difficult to recoup beyond a certain level. So, um, yeah, the only way to do something like this, I'd have to take the thing and break a few of its legs off, um, find a way of reducing it. Um, it's, um, it was written back in the day when I still thought very big as well, pre-Moreau. So, um, there's a, uh, definitely right now, I would um, amputate a few of the crab spider's legs, um, which is what we had to do in Hardware 1 as well, and that um, the droid in Hardware was always meant to have more legs, but we had to... Um, reduce the number of limbs in order to shoot the thing on budget. In that case, literally. So then, do you think with the strong following that I think hardware still has, I mean, you'd be a better judge of it than, than I would if, if the following is strong, but it feels to me that, that, that there's still an audience for it out there. Yeah, that's part of the problem, because every time I post anything to do with hardware 2 or ground zero in the net, we get massive numbers of likes. And, um, everyone goes ecstatic for it. Um, which producers notice. They like the fact that um, there's so much goodwill towards hardware. But um, the fact that I, that I then have to say, well, you can't call it hardware, kind of um, reduces part of the um, incentive for getting involved. And that, yeah, the original still has a pretty strong following. I mean, I am trying at this point in time to put together a low-budget sci-fi horror movie, which is looking very healthy. We're out to cast right now. But... Um, as we're still um, fishing around, it's difficult to say anything much more other than the fact that it's an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, which we've zeroed in on because that's in one location. It's all set on one farm. Uh, there's sufficiently containable that we can get at it within the, the budgetary constraints of um, being a um, relatively low-budget movie. So, yeah, very much hoping to um, shoot this in Canada in the next 12 months or so. It's shaping up well and will be the first um, sci-fi horror movie I've done in a while. And yeah, maybe the first outright horror movie. Because I'm not sure that either hardware or dust devil really qualify. You did a short for Theatre Bazaar, uh, a segment called The Mother of Toads. Well, it's really um, a, a fusion of several different Lovecraftian elements. The Mother of Toads herself is coming from a Clark Ashton Smith story called The Mother of Toads. Um, the Necronomicon's been borrowed from um, H.P. Lovecraft. But it also has a whole bunch of Lucia Fulci gags. Because Catriona McCall obviously is the star of The Beyond. And um, in The Beyond there is another black book, The Book of Ebon, which um, shows up pr prominently. So yeah, the seal of Ebon is noticeable in the, the book in... Um, the Book of Ebon is another creation of Clark Ashton Smith, who wrote um, The Mother of Toads, the original short story, so it's, it's very um, self-referential. But um, the main deal of that is it was shot for um, 20 grand in, on a crazy five-day shooting schedule. And um, it rained very heavily for the first three days. So um, we're pretty happy with the way Mother of Toads turned out and the... Um, the back of the Theatre Bazaar said, hey, can't you write a feature-length um, Lovecraft adaptation? At which point I also realized that a lot of the, um, the key Lovecraft stories were in public domain, which enable, essentially enables anyone to take a shot at them. Uh, um, yeah, after due deliberation, decided to um, write a new adaptation of Color Out of Space, 
um, to um, see if we could do that at feature length. I assume when you say uh, uh, Canada, you, you, you're talking British Columbia? Well, possibly Ontario, because um, there's um, tax incentives. Basically, because it's a farmhouse in an isolated neck of the woods, it's a movable feast. And that um, I've been, I'm prepared to set it in any backwoods that can um, serve as the um, as west of Arkham. Um, um, on from there. So, Richard, we've done almost uh, two hours now. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. I truly appreciate it. Oh, thanks, man. Take care out there. Stay in touch and yeah, watch out for those droids. I mean, protest now because tomorrow it'll be too late. Tomorrow will be too late. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Two Evil Eyes podcast. You can comment on this episode via Twitter at Two Evil Eyes Pod. 